I would like to share with you the great covenant of salt in the Bible. The background of the covenant of salt is most interesting because there were two great covenants of antiquity. One is called the covenant of blood, the other is called the covenant of salt. The covenant of blood, I believe, is the older of the two. And even to this day, they still cut the covenant of blood among some of the African tribes. They did it here in in our country too, I guess, among the Indians, where they got to be blood brothers. They cut, and then they'd cut on the... And the two men would rub their wrists together, and from then on they were blood brothers. The covenant of salt is also still carried on in our far eastern and some of the near eastern countries. But we here in the highly academic realm of the Occident have sort of lost track of what the meaning of the covenant of salt is supposed to be all about. And it's just such a fantastic covenant because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ participated in it and he is our example. We in the way ministry are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're the way. We're followers of him who is the way, Jesus Christ. Not only the way, he's the truth and he's the life. And the way ministry is simply a biblical research, teaching, and fellowship ministry. If anybody asks you what we are, that's all you have to tell them. We are a biblical research. We're a teaching, and we're a fellowship ministry. We work the Word of God, then we teach it. We share it with our people or with God's people, whoever wants to hear it. And then we have fellowships, fellowships like this, and smaller fellowships like twigs, but they're fellowships. And in every one of those fellowships, the accuracy of the word is always presented, and we teach it. Being a research ministry, perhaps the emphasis is on the searching for you more than on the read, where you just search it, search it, search it, like they did in the word of God, They searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were true which were taught by the Apostle Paul. And we, in the way ministry, are a researching, searching the word for truth. In order to show you some of the background of this great covenant assault, I'll give you a number of things that you can check on in a Bible dictionary or any of those works that are accurately written regarding some of these things, but this is also in the Bible, and there are many, many verses that you can look up in your concordance, and certainly all of you who are working the Word have access to a concordance like Strong's or Young's. Many of you have Bollinger's, but... In order to build the covenant of salt for you and show you the greatness of the word, I have to give you this background. 
Moses and Aaron were brothers. Miriam was their sister. And according to the record in God's word, Miriam perhaps was the oldest of all the children because the Bible said that she sort of watched over Moses a little bit. And Aaron, Moses' brother, is the one who became the first high priest for Israel. Moses was the prophet, but Aaron was the high priest, the first for Israel. Now, Moses and Aaron and Miriam came out of what is called in the Bible the tribe of Levi. There were twelve sons of Jacob, twelve sons. Jacob's name later on was changed to Israel. And the twelve tribes of Israel that people speak about and the Word speaks about are Jacob's twelve sons because Jacob, the word Jacob means supplanter, supplanter, one who cheats everybody as quickly as he can. So when he got changed, when his heart life was changed, you remember the record in the Bible, it says he had a wrestling night and when God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, and Israel means beloved of God. So the twelve sons of Jacob or Israel, one of those twelve was Levi. Levi was Jacob's third son by his wife Leah. And the word Levi, the name Levi, means joined to the root. Joined to the root. And that becomes very significant as we research and work the word with you tonight regarding the covenant assault. Levi had three sons. Gershom, Kohath, and Marii. Those were the three sons of Levi. In Numbers chapter 3, verse 6, God said in 5, He talked to Moses saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron, the priest, that they may minister unto him. And they shall keep his charge and the charge of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of the congregation to do the service of the tabernacle. And they shall keep all the instruments of the tabernacle of the congregation and the charge of the children of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. Verse 9, And thou shalt give the Levites unto Aaron and to his sons, their holy given unto him out of the children of Israel. Verse 10, And thou shalt appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall wait or take care on their priest's office, and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Now, those three sons of Levi, Gershom, Kohath, 
and Merai, M-E-R-A-I is the way it's spelled, they were all Levites because they were all born of Levi. But out of those three sons, Kohath, the second son, was the one out of whom Moses, Aaron, Miriam came. And the record in here was that all the children of Aaron were to be the priests that I just read to you. They were all Levites, but all the sons of Aaron were in the priestly line. Aaron was the first high priest. Then the sons of Aaron became the high priests and the other priests that were serving in the tabernacle or, or in the temple of God. So logically, all the sons of Aaron were Levites. Got it? But not all the Levites were priests. Understand? Now, the high priest or the priest had to marry women out of the same bloodline, so to speak. They had to be, the women they married had to be out of the Aaron bloodline. Now, they were free to marry others besides priests, but if they did, they lost the privilege of eating at the table of the priests. The rest of the people who were not in that Aaron bloodline still were Levites, and they served in the temple, the tabernacle, and they just took care of everything. Three times a year at the three great feasts, all the courses of priests, 24 courses, had to all return to Jerusalem, and they all served in the temple at that time. When the service in the temple was all over with, then the priests would go back among the children of Israel. Likewise with many of the Levites. They'd go back among the children of Israel. And they were to be God's people to teach the Word to Israel. The priests were. The Levites were out there to help with it. They did the music. The Levites did the music. There were one section of Levites did nothing but the music for the temple. And that's how God had set this up under Moses with Aaron. And they were not to have any inheritance in the land. When Israel went into the promised land, they inherited land. But the tribe of Levi never was given any land or any inheritance in the promised land because biblically they were God's inheritance and they were to work for God and God said he would take care of them and he did it by the other tribes all bringing their tithes, everything else into the storehouse and their sacrifices and their firstlings of the flock and the Levites 
lived off of that which the other tribes made available in that wonderful Israel household. That was God's design and purpose. And these Levites were to be God's people. And these people, the Levites, were attached to God by a covenant of salt, originally. That's how it all started. And that record is in Numbers 18. This is its first record in the Bible. Verse 19. Numbers 18, verse 19. Ready? All the heave offerings. Now, I'll bet there are not too many people know what a heave offering is. It's not something you heave around, throw around, or anything like that. See? (laughs) The heave offering is a peace offering. It has peace in it. It's a it's the offering of peace because of God's presence and what God does for the people. And there's a variety of things involved. You just have to look it up in a dictionary of the Bible and check it out. But all the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer unto the Lord, have I, what, given thee, and thy sons, and thy daughters with thee, by a statute forever. God says, I have given it. Understand? It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord unto thee and to thy seed with thee. There's God's covenant. God did the covenant. He did the covenant of salt with them. He said, this is your covenant of salt. I have made it with you. You are my people. And that you can understand because the word Levi means joined to the root. Who is the root? God. That's great. And they were to be attached to God. And God said, He would do it or did it with a covenant of what? That's right. That's its first usage. And the Lord spake in verse 20 unto Aaron, Thou shalt have no what? Inheritance in their land. Neither shalt thou have any part among them. I am thy what? and thine inheritance among the children of what? And behold, verse 21, I have given the children of Levi all the tenth in Israel for an inheritance, for their share, for their service which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. So God established a covenant with Levi, the children of Levi. The covenant was established by the covenant of salt. So if we can ever find out what it is, then we know what God did. We will. We will. 
But that attaches them to the root. Levi. Root attachment. Joined to the root. Now God gave the kingdom of Israel to David also by a covenant assault. Now before I read this with you, Jesus Christ came of whom? David. This covenant assault, as you build it and work it in the Word, becomes dynamically interesting. In Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter 13. Second Chronicles 13, verse 5. Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom of Israel to David, how long? Even to him and to his sons by a covenant of what? That's right. Jesus Christ came of David's line. That's true. But there are other great things involved here. He came, Jesus Christ, as the high priest. But he also came as king. And in Luke chapter 2, the record regarding the conception of Jesus Christ and his birth is real significant. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Talking about Mary, Luke 2, 7. And she, Mary, brought forth her what? Firstborn son. It's unique that it says firstborn. In Gospel of John, it says that God so loved the world that He gave His what? Only begotten Son. Then Jesus Christ was not Mary's only begotten. He was Mary's what? And if you have a firstborn, that tells me you must have a laterborn child, right? Otherwise, otherwise that child would not be your firstborn. It would be your what? Only begotten. You got it? It's so simple. The Word of God says, no matter what people say, and you got to remember the way ministry, we're a biblical research and teaching ministry. We do not have to agree with tradition. We don't have to go with what anybody has said, provided the Word fits like a hand in a glove. And we work the Word. She brought forth her firstborn what? And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. What that verse does not tell you is what they did before they wrapped him in swaddling clothes. The swaddling clothes were little beautiful strips like 
real expensive linen strips, maybe two, three inches wide at the most. And whenever a child was born, that was a prince who would be king. They would swaddle that child. See, Mary didn't wrap our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in rags. Didn't wrap Him in swaddling clothes because she was poverty-stricken and Joseph didn't have any money and they had to beg all the clothes that they had for the baby. That's a lie from the pit. They had prepared for the birth of this wonderful son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ was born... They had brought with them that exquisite wrapping because every prince, every prince had to be wrapped in swaddling clothes at the time of birth. But before they wrapped him in swaddling clothes, the baby having been born, they would have to clean it up, wash it. And when they would wash the baby, they would always put a little bit of salt in the water so that that child would be, right after birth, would be salted. That's the first thing they would do after they were born. When they started cleaning up, they would salt the baby. Put salt in the clean-up water. And then they'd clean up the baby. Then after the baby was cleaned up, dried off, then they would immediately wrap it in swaddling clothes from the top of their head to the soles of their feet. The reason that every prince had to be salted is because when that prince would become king, he was to judge the people uprightly and honestly. And his words had to be salted. He, as the king, had to say what he meant and he had to mean what he said. That's why the prince was salted at birth. Wrapped in swaddling clothes so that when he got to be king, he would walk uprightly before the people. Straight and upright before the people, swaddling clothes, always speak the truth and judge justly salted. That's why Jesus Christ was salted. That's why he was wrapped in swaddling clothes here in verse 7. Verse 8, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great what? Which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the what? And this shall be a sign unto you. To the shepherds, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Boy, that's quite a record. When they would wrap the baby in swaddling clothes after they had cleaned it up with the water that had some salt in it, 
they wouldn't let that baby in there for the next three, four days. That wasn't the idea. It was simply to wrap him because God's Word demanded that he as a prince, later to be the king, would have to walk uprightly. So indicative of that, they wrapped him. And when the angels reported to the shepherds, they said, you'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes. These were shepherds outside of the city of Bethlehem, east of the city of Bethlehem, who had to come from where they were tending their sheep to the city of Bethlehem. They had to travel that far, and they still, it said they would find Jesus Christ wrapped in what? Perhaps a half hour would be the longest they'd ever leave a baby in. Fifteen minutes. Very short periods of time. Now these shepherds were informed that they, if they went to Bethlehem, would find Jesus wrapped in what? Now look at verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel of multitude a heavenly host praising God and what? Angels never sing in the Bible. They only sing in wrong songs and things that are written erroneously. Angels do not sing. Saints do. That's why you sing, I guess. Because none of you are angels. (laughs) Not even you beauties, ladies. But they, they said... Glory to God in the highest and on earth earth peace. Goodwill toward men. Verse 15. Came to pass as the angels were gone away from them in the heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even to what? And see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And here's the key. They came with what? haste. You know what that means? They came with haste. They hurried. They hurried. All they had was a little bit of the Word of God. But that was enough for them. They believed. The angels had just said, unto you is born in the city of David a what? Hurry up over. He didn't say hurry. He said, you'll find him wrapped in what? And that was the Word of God. That's all they had. But they believed it. And you know, when when they received God's Word, they held a conference, huh? And they said, now, let's have a little tea first. Let's get together and figure out, is this really God talking to us? Really? No, you know what they did? Boy, they hot-footed it down to Bethlehem. The moment they had God's Word, they said, man, we're off. Maybe they took their ambassador one and went in. I don't know. Uh, That's right. See, the reason most people do not get the consequences of or the results of the greatness of God's Word is because you have God's Word and then you argue with it. Just argue with it. The shepherds didn't argue with it. They just believed God's Word. Whenever people begin to 
argue with God's Word, they'll always get the results of their unbelief. Whenever they believe God's Word, they'll, they'll just have the tremendous joy of seeing it fulfilled. These shepherds heard the Word. They believed the Word. They did not argue about it. They didn't discuss it. They just said, fellas, let's go. And they went. And they came with haste, it says. Maybe they had a Harley 74. I don't know. <laughs> BMW, one of you fans. Honda, I don't know. Now, they came and they found Mary, Joseph. The babe was lying in a what? Right. And when they had seen it, verse 17, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this what? Yep. And all they that heard it, the declaration of the shepherds, all the people who heard it, scratched their head and they said, what new thing could this possibly be? They wandered. You know what the word wandered means? You know, they, they, they questioned. They said, look, these are shepherds. They're not the governors. They're not the mayors. Those little old shepherds. Do you think it's true what they said? How can we believe it? Certainly if those shepherds know it, the mayor over here should, the governor should have known it. So they what? Yeah. They scratched their heads, right? Lucky they didn't get splinters under their fingernails scratching their head. <laughs> right. They wondered at those things which were told them by what? But Mary kept all these things and pondered them. She put them in her lockbox. That's what she did. She hid it inside and didn't say anything. And the shepherds, verse 20, returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and what? They went witnessing wows. Right? Look at it, verse 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and what? For all the things they had what? Right. And verse 17 says they made known abroad. They talked to everybody about it. And I assume if they would have had psychiatric wards, they'd have put them all in at that time. They'd have caught them. Why? Shepherds, you know, not great people of renowned prestige, not men living in houses of gold, but just shepherds out in the Judean hills, just common, ordinary, beautiful shepherds. They were the ones who got the revelation by the angel to go into Bethlehem. And you'll find the babe wrapped in what? And they got there, and the babe was still wrapped in swaddling clothes. They knew he was the prince, and they knew that he was the king by being wrapped in swaddling clothes. 
No wonder everybody thought they were a little off their rocker. Huh? That's right. But they had heard and they had what? Seen. And they went everywhere and told it. This is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he was salted. That's how he was swaddled. And these are the reasons for it. And this becomes sort of neat. Because I believe that Mary was of the Aaron high priest bloodline. Elizabeth was Mary's cousin, remember? Married to Zacharias, the priest. That's what the word speaks of. Now, Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, if He's ever going to be the high priest, has to come out of the so-called, in one sense, the Aaron line. To be the priest, remember? Now you just stick with me. We're working the word. That's what I'm here for. And I told you a little while ago that they could marry, if they were of the priestly line, they could marry someone else, didn't they? At the time of the Annunciation to Mary in chapter 1 of Luke, in verse 35, it says, Luke 1, 35. The angel answered and said unto her, that's the Mary, Holy Ghost shall cover, come over thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called God. Lord. Called what? Son. That's what it says. That's what it means. Verse 36, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, cousin Elizabeth, that is the great word, cousin. If you'll check this again in your concordances and work it, you will see that this word means kinsman. Kinsman. And I can understand this kinsman because that means blood relationship. Blood relationship. That blood relationship, that's the word cousin here, Elizabeth, blood relationship. That blood relationship in Mary, even though Mary was of the house of David, which understand, the king, understand that, but the blood relationship goes back to Second Samuel 15, 12. And Absalom, Absalom was one of the sons of David, right? Sent for a hit Ophel. See that word? Second Samuel fifteen twelve. Ahithophel. The Gilonite, 
David's consular from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered what? Who was offering sacrifices? Only the high priests or the priests could offer what? Here is this fellow, Ahithophel, doing it. Do you know who Ahithophel is? He's the grandfather of Bathsheba. I think David had a relationship with Bathsheba, didn't he? And his son was born. Who? How do you like that? Yeah. That's the grandfather of Bathsheba. He was offering sacrifices which have to be offered by what? A priestly line. Bathsheba's father, his name was Eliam, E-L-I-A-M. And this has nothing to do with the covenant of salt, but it just flipped up in my mind because of the one million, one million, I think, 570,000 warriors of Israel Less than 100 were absolutely faithful men. Their names are given in the Word of God. Less than 100 were absolutely committed men to David. Less than 100. Really committed. This man, this grandfather fellow, had been committed to David, but he turned against David and arranged with Absalom, telling Absalom, I'll go chop David's head off. But his son was Eliam, E-L-I-A-M, who was the father of Bathsheba. And he, Eliam, E-L-I-A-M, is listed among the faithful to David. The father of Bathsheba. It's a remarkable working of the Word when you put this all together. There is no excuse before God for unfaithfulness. Trust worthlessness. There is no excuse because, like it says in the New Testament, the one requirement of a steward is what? Faithfulness. And Eliam, the father of Bathsheba, stayed faithful to David in spite of what David did to Uriah or Bathsheba. That's why he's listed among the mighty men, less than a hundred of all those almost two million warriors. Quite a man. But that has nothing to do with covenant assault, just my head working. See, this grandfather offered the sacrifice. Now we'll go to Hebrews for a moment. Hebrews chapter 7. You have in verse 1 the listing of a man by the name of Melchizedek. Sometimes it's pronounced Melchizedek. 
I don't care how you pronounce it as long as both of us know what we're talking about. Whether you're from Boston or Boston, I don't care. Whether you is from Minnesota or Minnesota, I don't care. Long as we know what we're talking about. And this record of Melchizedek comes up and you'll see there the sons of Levi in verse 5 is mentioned. This whole section, you just have to take the time and read it for yourself. And verse 11 says, If therefore perfection was by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of what? Melchizedek. And not be called after the order of what? 4, verse 12. The priesthood being changed. There is made of necessity a change also of what? For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth or belongeth to another tribe. The order of Melchizedek to another tribe. A tribe is named after its what? Father. You've got a tribe of kids. They're named after what? The simple, right? Of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of what? Of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning what? You follow? Just stay put. Screw your mind down in the Word and just read it. And is yet far more evident for that after the similitude, likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another what? Priest. Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, legal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. 4 verse 17, he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of what? There it is. Boy, oh boy. God had sworn to Aaron and the Levites by a covenant of what? That they were to be rooted to him. Right? What happened to the children of Israel? They tore themselves away from what? The root. God's the root. God had to dump them. They went into captivity. Oh, they went through the religious ritual. But if you ever read the Word of God, it blow your mind what they did. The priests would have intercourse with the girls in the temple on the altar. Ever read that in the Old Testament? God stunk in His nostrils, it says. And yet, Mary came out of the bloodline from that side I showed you that she was entitled to the priestly line. But because Israel's rejection A Savior was to be born. 
And he was not to be born after the order of Aaron. But he was to be born after the order of Melchizedek. And he was to be attached to the root. Jesus Christ, ma'am, was conceived in Mary by God, Holy Spirit. God created in Mary that which was soul life. Came from God's side, not from the Aaron side. God is the one who'd established the covenant of salt. God didn't break the covenant. The people broke it. So now God does something. And those verses I just read to you from Hebrews, there is no commentary handles it as I'm handling it with you. This is just research. This is just the truth of the integrity of God's Word. And if you've got eyes to see and ears to hear, you'll get real blessed. I'll read it once more for you. If perfection or staying right on had been available by the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been that Christ and other priests should have what? This one, after the order of Melchizedek, and not be called after the order of what? The priesthood being changed. Because God instituted it, man blew it, Israel... God changed. Christ is the end of the law. All this stuff will fit if you ever work it. A change in the law. Verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe. Not after Aaron, but a father, a tribe. God is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not Aaron. God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Okay, that's the new order. That's the new order. But the Word of God said that He would also be of the seed of whom? David. There is the line of Mary coming down. God's conception in Mary... Puts both of them together, people. Don't you see it? God and Mary line. The Aaron priest line on this side. Over here, God. And to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Nobody been there to give attendance at the altar. Only Aaronites. Not direct from God. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning what? Jesus Christ was of the tribe of Judah, remember? And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude or the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another what? Who is made not after the law of a fleshly, carnal, legal requirement, but after the power of of an endless life, God. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever 
after the order of what? There it is. Mary on one side had the priestly line, but she did not conceive by a man. God, Holy Spirit, remember we read it in Luke, God, and God is the root. And God did this in Mary, and then Mary brought forth her firstborn, what? Right. That's why Jesus Christ is called in the Word of God the high priest after the order of Melchizedek and not after Aaron. That's why he is called the king of kings after David. So he is not only the high priest, but he is also the king. And all of this God did with a covenant assault. That's why Mary pondered all those things and stuck them in her heart, in her safety deposit box, her lock box. Boy, oh boy. That's right. Covenant assault, then swaddled. He is the high priest. And the year Jesus Christ died, people, for us, Annas and Caiaphas, there were two high priests. There weren't ever supposed to be, but they had it that way at that time. You know, sort of governmentally screwed up. And that very year, when they were sacrificing the Passover lamb, what they did not know is that the lamb of God was being slain. God's only begotten son and that he was their Passover lamb. They didn't know that, but he was. But God raised him from the dead because he was of the seed of the tribe of God. And God raised him up on the third day. That was Saturday. Then Sunday morning, a woman came to the sepulcher and there was this fellow roaming around. And she sort of looked over their shoulder and said, Oh, that's got to be the gardener. But this resurrected Savior said to her, Mary. And Mary said, The Rabboni. And then Jesus Christ said, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my what? That's right. Because when a person is dead, he is contaminated biblically and Christ fulfilled all the law. Therefore, nobody touches a dead body which has been dead. He resurrected, didn't touch it. And what Jesus Christ did, that's why he said to her, touch me not. He went into the temple. And when he went into the temple... What do you think he found? The veil. The veil of the temple rent from top to what bottom? That's right. And the veil of the temple is that part which separated the Holy of Holies behind here from this where the people were gathered, the holy place. And Jesus Christ went into that temple 
And he took the command of the temple. And to do that, he had to be able to go back here. And he could only go back there if he was the one. You got it, man. That's it, baby. Right. And the middle wall of partition had been broken down. There was no more a separation between the people and the altar here. He was the high priest. He was God's only begotten Son. He died so that you and I might live. He was who knew no sin, honey, became sin. As 1 Corinthians 1 says, that you and I might become what? The righteousness of God in Him. God had so loved that He had given His only what? And God raised Him from the dead. And He went into the temple and He is God's high priest. That's why Hebrews will fit for you. Verse 12 of chapter 9. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His what? Jesus Christ. He entered in. What? Once. Not again and again. Not like they do in Mass where He dies daily. Christ does not die daily. Christ died how many times? Once. And once He entered in with His blood, gave His life, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Right? For if the blood of bulls and goats and heifers, ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the puring of the flesh, Old Testament, how much more, verse 14, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, which is God, offered Himself without spot to God, purge even your what? Conscience from dead works to serve the living who? There it is. He is God's high priest. He was the high priest. He was also the king of all Israel. And ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says he ascended up into heaven. And he sat down at the right hand of God. And on the day of Pentecost, he made available, God through Christ made available, the greatest miracle of all miracles. That's why you're seated here tonight. A miracle of the new birth. And the new birth is God in Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the new birth. God did all of this in Jesus Christ. And it all started back in the Old Testament when God had made a covenant of salt with Levi. Now let's go a little further. You've got to just read Hebrews, okay, sometime. Can't stay here all night with you, but you ought to read it. I want to show you something from Matthew 5. Verse 13. Ye are the salt of what? And remember to be salted. You say what you mean, and you mean what you want. That's to be salted. The prince, when he became king, had to be salted. He had to speak truth. He had to speak right on. 
His words had to mean what he said, and he had to say what he meant. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people's words were again salted? That you would really say what you meant and meant what you said? If you made a promise to someone to be at a certain place, you'd be there on time. If you worked out a deal with someone, you'd keep your word. It's just unbelievable how far we too have sunk away from being salted. So you draw up contracts and everybody looks for loopholes. You wouldn't need a contract if you're contracted with God and right on. Then you're going to be what? Salted. Then you're going to mean what you say and you're going to say what you be. You shake hands with a man that settles it. It's salted. It says, ye are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth because you mean what you say and you say what you mean, right? But, 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 in contrast, if the salt has lost its savor or its saltiness, how does salt lose saltiness? God had given it to Israel Levites as a covenant of what? Salt. He'd given the kingdom of Israel to David by a covenant of what? Right. But the Levites, they moved away from the covenant. So there must be a way where salt loses its saltiness. And it does by bringing foreign elements in it. The picture here is a biblical orientalism. In the Bible houses, the woman stores the salt. The salt is stored in like a wooden barrel and it sits right on the floor. During the rainy season, the water underneath the ground comes up under the salt barrel. Sometimes in those homes, the water rushes in and it hits the bottom of the barrel about this much. And it seeps into the salt. And because it's a foreign object moving in, it draws the saltiness out. And when the woman finally gets to the bottom of that barrel, there's that salt that has lost its saltiness. And it's real hard. It's caked in there. It's lost its saltiness. And you people know the same thing is true in salt today. If the saltiness is gone, it would be like it's cake, you understand? It's just cake. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost its savor, it can only happen because something from the outside comes in and quelches the saltiness. Thenceforth, wherewith shall it be what? It is thenceforth good for what? Nothing. Good for what? People who are salt of the earth are thenceforth good for what? But to be cast out, to be trodden under the foot of what? <laughs> Real interesting, isn't it? Real interesting. Trodden under the foot of men. What does it mean? <laughs> I can put this all together for you 
but you just got to take time and work it with me. In order to understand the salt being trodden under the foot of men, you have to read the next couple of verses in Matthew. Because if you're salted, you're the salt of the earth. If you're the salt of the earth, verse 14, you are also what? So whoever is salted is light. Got it? A city that's set on a hill cannot be what? Neither. Verse 15. Do men light a candle, a lamp is the text, and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, a pillar, and it giveth light unto all that are where? In the house. Let your light so shine because you're salted people. And you're holding it up here. See it? It's held out. When the shepherds return from Bethlehem, they told it, right? It was the light shining that something had happened in Bethlehem. Found him wrapped in what? That's right. Let your light so shine before men that they may see, may see your good works. And your good works would have to be works that are what? Salted. Salted. That they may glorify your Father, what? Which is in heaven. Whenever your life is salted, you will be a light. Now all temples, all temples are built on hills. All the temples are built at the highest places they can find in the community. This is sort of unique because the highest place in the community, you could see the what? The light. But the temples were all built on hills and they were pagan temples. Pagan temples. That's the counterfeit. They tried to tell the people, that's where you get your light from, the pagan temples. Now, the pathway that goes to the pagan temple, if a salt has lost its savor, what do you do with it? You cast it out and it's trodden under the foot of what? They would take the salt when it's lost its savor and put it on the pathway that went to the temple that's trodden underfoot. Trodden underfoot to where the light's supposed to be. That is the background of that verse. Or verses. There's a tremendous mistranslation in King James I'm going to show you. And you can do with it as you like. Check your own text. But it's in Psalm 121. Psalm 121. I don't think any of you will have to check the text because you can read English. And it's pretty accurate in here. 
but it's bad from a one point of view. It's simple though. Psalm 121, does everybody have it? The King James says, I will lift up mine eyes unto what? From whence cometh my help, period. Is that what it says? That's absolutely right. Now just sit and think for a moment. Honestly, does the help from the true God come from the hills where the pagan temples are built? The text reads, shall I, not I will, shall I lift up mine eyes unto the hills? Question. Question. Pagan temples up on the hills, class. Shall I lift up mine eyes unto the hills? Question. From whence cometh my help? Question. Next verse. My help cometh from whom? The Lord who made what? Heaven and earth. There it is. My help, sir, doesn't come from the hills where the pagan temples are built. I don't lift up mine eyes unto the hills. My help doesn't come from the hills, from the pagan temples. My help cometh from the Lord, not the pagan temples. My help cometh from the Lord who created or who made the heavens and the what? That's what Psalm 121 says. You don't lift up your eyes unto the hills where the salt that has lost its savor is put on the roadway and where those false lights are. You lift up your eyes unto God, the Creator of all heaven and earth, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Back to Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 14. Look at verse 31. What king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassador and desires conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my what? Salt is good. But if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be what? Seasoned. It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the what? Men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, wash him out. Let him hear. It's not fit for the land nor for what? That is unique. In Judges chapter 9. Joshua Judges chapter 9. Forty-five. And Abimelech, are you there? 945, Judges. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. And he took the city and slew the people that were therein 
and beat down the city, and he sowed it with what? Sowed it with salt, because it was dead, destroyed. And he sowed it with what? That was salted. It's over with. Complete. It's established. Nothing ever going to grow up again of that city. It's salted. Show you another one. Jeremiah. Isaiah. Jeremiah. Chapter 17. Jeremiah 17. Verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in whom, and maketh flesh the man his what? And whose heart departeth from whom? For he, that man, shall be like the heath, like a scrubby shrub in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit parched places in the wilderness in a salt land, and not what? Right. In order to destroy a land and keep it from being productive, they would do what with it? That's the parched land. The land has been salted to the end that the salt has killed the vegetation and man has nothing to eat off of it because man has wandered away from God. That's the meaning of the record in Luke 14.35. It's neither fit for the land, not fit for land, because if it's lost, it's what? Saltiness? It couldn't do anything to the land, right? Nor for the dunghill was that city that was destroyed that had become like dung and they salted it, remember? That's the usage in Luke. Mark chapter 9, 49. For everyone shall be what? Salted. Everyone shall be salted with fire. Talking about the sacrifice. Every sacrifice shall be salted with what? Salt is good. But if the salt have lost its saltiness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in your what? And have peace one with another. Remember the peace offering, the heave offering? Peace. Because it's salted. Leviticus chapter 2. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Verse 13. Every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with what? Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer what? And that's the Old Testament record of Mark 9, 49 and 50 that I've just read you. God established all of this by a covenant of what? That's where we started. And we close with Colossians. 
chapter 4. This is in a church epistle addressed to you. Colossians chapter 4. Verse 5. Walk in what? Wisdom. Walk in wisdom. If you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world, you will be walking in what? And you'll be salted. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. And if you do that, you're going to redeem the what? You're not going to waste your time. You're not going to screw up and mess up. You're going to make your time God's time. Living for Him. That's wisdom if you're salted. And verse 6. Let your speech, your speech, what you say, be always with what? Grace. Grace is favor, graciousness. If, if I were doing this a literal translation according to you, Sage, I would translate it. Let your speech always be gracious. Or speak graciously. Seasoned with what? To mean what you say and to say what you mean. That ye may know how ye ought to answer or speak to every what? That's your covenant of salt. And that covenant salt was originally instituted by God from God's point of view. And as long as you walk in the light as He is the light, that covenant is applicable. He will carry it out. When I put all this together in the royal household of God to which you and I belong, the scriptures like God will supply all of our need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest what? Prosper and be in health. Why? Because we're attached to the root by a covenant of what? Let your speech be seasoned with what? That, ladies and gentlemen, I think is at least in part the greatness of the covenant assault that God established in the beginning with Levi. Then with the kingdom of David. Finally, on the day of Pentecost, with his household of believers, the royal household of God, the Jesus men and women, you. His covenant with you, it is salted. He means what he says, and he says what he means, and God never breaks his covenant. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the covenant. Thank you.